You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Of Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be starting uh, in verse 10. And I want to invite uh, my brother Chris to come and read uh, the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Will you guys pray with me for the preaching of the word? Father, we thank you for this morning to gather. We pray that as Pastor Rob expounds upon this scripture, that we would have attentive ears and attentive hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. Uh, We pray for you to uh, transform us by the renewing of our mind, that we would understand the great uh, depth of our sin and the great love that you have through Christ. Um, We we love you this, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Last week, we took a look at these opening words of Paul's letter. We we saw that Paul's theology here led to doxology. His thoughts about God led to praise about God. You don't see it in the English translation, but this is a 202-word run-on sentence of Trinitarian praise. You see, Paul is not letting his predicament underneath house arrest in Rome affect his praise, but he is letting his praise of God affect his predicament in Rome. He's praising God for his election of him, his predestining of him in verses 4 through 6. In verses 7 through 12, we see him praising God for the son's redemption. And in verses 13 and 14, we see him praising the spirit for sealing that promise within us. This is a one threefold praise for our three in one God. And today we get to focus on our redemption through the Son of God. Now we are all, including me, in need of redemption. We're in need of the Lord to redeem our friendships, redeem our homes and our marriages, redeem our careers. Redeem our hearts. Redeem this never-ending pandemic. And daily we are bombarded with various false systems and fake redeemers that regularly over-promise and under-deliver, are we not? I mean, if you were just to walk into a bookstore. I mean, okay, hold on. Who walks into a bookstore? Anyway, if you were to log on to Amazon, what you will find 
are dozens upon dozens of self-help books this afternoon. And if you're to go back to that website six months from now, you'll find some brand new self-help books. Do you want to know why? They don't work. They promise you that you can fix you, you can redeem you, and you can save you. They make you or another human out to be the redeemer. But here's the thing. You can't be the one in need of rescuing and also be the one who does the rescuing. You have to figure out who you are in this story. See, what we'll see today from Paul is that there only can be one redeemer, and the rest of us have to admit that that is not any of us. It is only Jesus. It's only Jesus. And we're going to observe this. If you've got handouts this morning, um, you'll see two points up there. We'll observe this through two points. We'll see the present reality of our redemption, what we get to enjoy right here, right now. And we'll also see the future reality of our unification. Here's the thing. I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul wants the church in Ephesus and, by extension, us, the church in Pittsburgh, to grasp a hold of this reality that our redemption in Christ leads to union in Christ. That our redemption in Christ leads to our union in Christ. And so if you're with me, I want to invite you to to keep those Bibles open. We'll dive into this first point here in verse 7. You all ready to dive in? First point, the present reality of our redemption. The Apostle Paul says this, In Him, that's Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Verses 3 through 6 told of our past reality of our salvation in the Father's choosing of us. These verses are showing us the present reality of our redemption in Christ. Now this word redemption would have brought up images for both the Gentile and Jewish culture in Ephesus. They, yes, would have been reminded of the bloodied cross of Christ, but even more so, they would have been taken back to the slave trade, to the slave markets, not only of Ephesus, but of Israel's enslavement in Egypt. To understand redemption, you have to understand the slave market. For to redeem someone means you purchase them out of their current predicament for a payment of price. So if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, you'll know that this word redemption first appears in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, where God is reassuring a very discouraged Moses that he will redeem his people out of slavery. Look what Moses writes in Exodus 6. The Lord says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I'll deliver you from slavery to them. And I'll redeem you, there's that word, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And how will God do this? 
It's by shedding the innocent blood of a spotless lamb, the Passover lamb. And it'll be that same innocent, spotless lamb that eventually the priests would daily offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. This blood was daily reminder as these priests sacrificed that sin kills. Sin destroys your relationship with others and it destroys your relationship with God. And Paul wants the church in Ephesus and us here in Pittsburgh to remember that God does not deal lightly with sin. He does not deal lightly with trespasses. There is a cost for crossing the holy boundary between a holy life that we are meant to live and an unholy life that we weren't meant to live. There is a great cost. See, what does it mean to trespass? Some of you know that I love to go fly fishing across the state of Pennsylvania. And with all the streams, there are signs that are posted between public land and private land. And in that private land, you see these big yellow signs that say, no trespassing, violators will be fined and prosecuted. But there's always this inkling that no one's really watching. And everyone knows that the biggest brown trout is hiding in those waters of the private land, not the public land. And isn't this how we live our life before God? We pretend like no one's watching. We think that no one is keeping a close watch on our life. Even though there are clear boundary markers that either we know within our soul or we know that it's written in his word between a wholehearted life before God and a half-hearted life before God. And the reality is, unlike those private landowners, God sees all. And there is a fine There is a cost for trespassing across God's boundaries. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin, or it could be read, For the wages of our trespasses, for the wages of our iniquity, is what? Read that with me. Death. That is the cost. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the redemption price for you and for me for our sin is death. And I just want to know, can any of us afford that payment? Can we redeem us? In an article that I read a few years ago by Brian Loritz, he, he tells this story of Helene Cooper and her sister during the, the Liberian conflict, the civil war that was happening in West Africa between 1989 and 97. See, as her as a young child, her house was broken in by soldiers, and her and her sisters were forced down into the basement by these soldiers where they planned to abuse them and ravage them. But then right as they are about to do their worst, the basement doors flung open. And it was Helene's mother 
And Helene's mother said, take me. Do to me what you're planning on doing to them. They released the girls. And they went up to their bedroom. And they heard sounds, the brutal sounds, of these soldiers taking advantage and ravaging their mother. What is redemption? It means to buy back. Helene and her sister were redeemed, purchased back. Their lives were purchased back. Their sanctity was purchased back by their mother's body and her life. And like Helene's mother, Christ has swung open the basement doors to save us what we cannot save us from ourselves. Because these aren't basement doors where we are about to get ravaged for things that we did not do. No, unlike those two girls, we are responsible for crossing boundary lines. And it's not just a basement that we're in. It is a tomb of sin that we are in. We are responsible, and Christ has flung open the doors to redeem us. And how does he redeem us? Look at what the author of Hebrews says. He says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is what? Can you read this with me? There is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. Loritz goes on to say that Christ provided the terms of our redemption. That we would be released and he would take our place on that bloodied cross. He would take our place on that cross to absorb the wrath of God so that we get the love of God that he deserves. Jesus knows that our sin has killed our relationship with others and has killed our relationship with God. And he's saying, I'm coming to pay the redemption price. I'm coming to ransom you. I'm coming to be killed so that you cannot be forsaken, but instead forgiven. This is what we get. Christ gets ravaged by our sin. We get, what does it say? Lavished with his grace. God isn't this rich money hoarder who keeps his grace for himself. He lavishes it on us. He lavishes his grace at the free gift at the cost of Jesus' life. And notice, notice what does it say? According to your good works, he did this? Is it according to whether you do more good or more bad that he forgives you? No, what's it according to? Not your goodness, but his grace. It's his grace. He redeemed us according to his grace, his mercy. Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He redeemed us. He bled for our redemption, for the forgiveness of sins right here, right now. This is the present reality of our redemption. That regardless of what you did last night, in Christ, you stand today here forgiven. Regardless of what you will do later today, how I will fail later today, I will stand, if I'm in Christ, forgiven. 
Regardless of what you will do three weeks from now, three months, three years from now, if you are in Christ, how do you stand? Forgiven. All because of the blood of Christ and his grace and not your good works. This is the present reality of our redemption in Christ Jesus. But Jesus just didn't redeem us so that we'd be forgiven. He redeemed us so that we could be free. We could be free to live out our future reality in the unification of Christ. That's our second point here today. The future reality of our unification in Christ because redemption leads to union. Look with me in the second half of verse 8. He says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I wonder if you remember prom or homecoming season. Anybody remember that? Only a few, okay. So just a few of you will, will understand this illustration. Um, it was the worst time for guys. Right, especially me as the president of the marching band. I had plan A who was going to be my dream date. But I regularly got the response, I, th- I thought we were just friends. Yeah, laugh, laugh, laugh all you want. We, we regularly have plan A's, don't we? Those dream plans. We have plan A. Yeah, we, la- we laugh about prom. Plan A's for education, degrees. Plan A's for marriage, careers, where we want to live. And very rarely do things that we plan go as planned, right? Not God. His plan has always been plan A. And will continue to be plan A. His plan, verse 10, he says, is to unite all things. All things in heaven and all things on earth. This is our future union when Jesus returns for us. This is the fullness of time, Paul says. What he's saying, that this has been a plan since before laying the foundations of the earth. That God's plan, what the whole Bible points to, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is that the whole world, the whole cosmos, the whole universe would be united in Christ. That's where all wrongs will be made right. All injustices will be brought to justice. When all sicknesses and viruses will be no more. When every sad thing will come on true. Because Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's when fear-filled and pride-filled divisions are erased because of the blood of Jesus. When Paul says all things... He's generally referring to all things. All of creation in general. Where he says in another part of the Bible that creation right now is groaning, eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. 
Remember, heaven is not something that we have to climb up to or go to. Heaven is something that will come down to us to renew all things underneath the banner and the love of Jesus. This is the fullness of time where God's two creations that are now separate will become one. That's what he means generally, but specifically he uses this word mystery. This mystery that's made known to us in all wisdom and insight. Now, have you guys ever heard Christians use the word mystery before? It's, it's kind of like Christianese. Oh, we just, we just chalk it up to the mystery of God. Oh, that's just the mystery of God's will. We, we just don't know. Can you put your nose in your Bible for a second? What does Paul say? Making known the mystery of God. He makes it known. Paul never refers to God's mysterious will as something that is hidden and then remains hidden. No, he uses this word mysterious in, in the Greek And every time he reuses it, six total times, it's something that is once hidden that now has been revealed in Christ. I mean, we will see this mystery in chapter 5 when Paul is referring to the first marriage of our first parents in Adam and Eve. And he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to, y'all know it, Christ and his adulterous bride, the church, that he's come back to redeem What is it pointing to? What are all marriages meant to point to? The union of Christ and his church. Its mystery is all about union. And he does this again in chapter 3. Look with it on the screen with me. He says, when you read this, you can. He doesn't say might if you're smart enough. No, he says you can perceive my insight into the what? Mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been what? revealed to his holy prophets and apostles by the Spirit. This mystery, there's that word again, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel moment. This is the Apostle Paul's mic drop moment. Do you see Gentiles in Christ in Ephesus? You've been redeemed by Israel's Savior, who is also the Savior of the entire world. That his blood leads to unity, not just in the future, but right here, right now, in your port city of Ephesus. And they got to be imagining, are you saying that this former Gentile cult prostitute at the temple of Artemis, because she put her faith in Christ, is now one, co-heirs with that Jewish rabbi from the synagogue who put his faith in Christ. And Paul's saying, yes, they're now co-heirs, partakers of the same promise, members of the same body. We have to remember that Ephesus was a very homogenous city. Homogenous is just a fancy word for same. Same of the same of the same. You're identified by either your family or ethnicity, and that led to your religion. You didn't choose it. But Paul here is saying this mystery 
is that Jesus not only died for your redemption, but it leads to your unification because you did not, and you're not supposed to choose your own church family. God chose you to be part of his family, made up of has-beens, wannabes, could-haves, and should-haves. But know that they can't, but Jesus can. And in chapter 2, Paul says these dividing walls of hostility that once used to separate Jews from the rest of the world, that used to segregate one nation from the rest of the nation, they've been abolished in Christ's flesh. They've been abolished because we now are a one body, he says, with one head, who is Christ. We're one body filled with the Spirit of God because we all have one Father who loves us. This dividing wall, John Stott says, this dividing wall which Jesus has abolished is not the barrier which separates the world from the church. That's not the dividing wall. It's the barrier which segregates groups and individuals from one another within the church. So unity, unity with others based on temporary things of this world is foolishness. But what does wisdom look like? It's the mystery that we are one with what is eternal in this world. And his name is Jesus. Paul is saying, and I am saying, we have a future union in Christ that affects and must drive our union with one another today. This mystery is the unity of all tribes, all language, all nations, all peoples, all cultures, every man, woman, and child under the headship of Christ. He's saying this mystery has been made known to you, made known to you so that you can make it known to the rest of the world. And how do we make it known to the rest of the world? It's how we love others in Christ who don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, and live the same way as us. I just wonder, is this the mystery that's been made known to us that we are now making known to our neighbors? Is this the unity our neighbors see? That when they look at you and who's over your home, who's gathered in here today, will they have to conclude that something supernatural is going on because there's no reason these people would hang out in the same place together? Will they have to conclude a miracle had to have taken place for them to be one? But here's the thing. Some people think that unity is equal with uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Our world and our culture, some even within the church, some think that if we agreed on the same politics or policies, mandates, education, sociology, that somehow, some way, these things can functionally redeem our divisive cultural moment today. And I just wonder, what do others have to do in order to be one with you.
And we often make others work to prove themselves worthy of our time. We often make others sacrifice their preferences for our needs. We make others act like us, vote like us, be like us. That is uniformity that has no place within the church. It's not unity. And this reveals what we are enslaved to, what we need redeemed from, into believing that these functional redeemers overpromise and underdeliver because no human system or structure or self is able to redeem. They can educate, they can motivate, but they cannot redeem. Why? It's because every structure, every system, even the self, constantly says the problem is out there and not in here. We, me, you know are you like me? Can I just be real with you? Where I regularly believe that if others would just be more like me, things would be fine. Which then reveals a deeper enslavement. An enslavement to our selfishness. Enslavement to our valuing preferences over people. An enslavement to our pride. That not only do we know better than others, but we are. It's enslavement to what about me mentality. This is what we need rescued from. This is what I need rescued from. Paul Tripp says, The Bible invites me to the hope that can only be found in the Redeemer. I need more than help. I need rescue. I need someone to do for me what I could not do for myself. You see, when you are in a helpless situation, you can't be educated out of it. You must be rescued out of it. See, I wonder what you would say if someone would ask you, what is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with this city? Back in the early 1900s, that question was posed from the London Times to a bunch of different thinkers. You've been around Renaissance long enough. You, you know what I'm about to show you. It's G.K. Chesterton's response to the question, what's wrong with the world today? And he says, dear sir, Regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. See, what's the world's primary problem? What does the world primarily need rescued from? What do I need rescued from? See, those who are not Christians, the world around us will keep saying others. But those who know that grace has been lavished upon them through the blood of Jesus will say me. I'm what's wrong with the world today. And this is where our union begins. Where we agree that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. That we all 
don't measure up. That the world needs a redeemer. That the world has a problem and it's us. And the redeemer is not us. It's Jesus. This is where our unity begins. This is how our unity continues. And this is how our unity lasts. Because what does God do in order to unite all things to himself? What does he require of us? What's it according to? Not the purpose of our will. What does it say? The purpose of his will. It's his good will. You see, he knows. He's asked us to be holy like he is holy. Paul will say later in chapter 5 that we are to be imitators of our Father in heaven. But he knows because the problem that lies within us, not outside of us, we are unable to be holy like he is holy. But instead of waving his fist like a disappointed father, he says, I know I've expected you to be like myself. but I'm going to come down and put myself on the hook for your problems. Instead of you requiring you to work your way up and pull yourselves up with bootstraps when you don't even have boots to put on, I'm going to come down to you and become like you. That in the person of Christ, God himself has come down He is put on human flesh, took the form of a servant, and is not telling you to measure up and be like me or else. He's saying, I'm coming to be like you so that you don't have to go anywhere else. You can come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why will he give us rest? It's because what Jesus put on on the cross was our sin. So that we, by faith and repentance, put on Christ's righteousness alone. That in Christ Jesus, we are completely forgiven and our sins are forgotten about because he's not only bled to wash us white, he's bled for us to unite underneath his head. He has saved us. He has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, Levitical priests, they were daily offering sacrifices in the temple, daily being reminded of what sin does with the blood all around them. But when Jesus bled on the cross, was buried in the tomb, was raised from the grave three days later, Jesus is at the right hand of God saying, it is finished because Jesus isn't standing up making any more sacrifices. He has sat down. He has sat down to say, the work is finished. You don't have to work for God's approval anymore. You don't have to work for your forgiveness. You don't have to work to keep cleaning yourself off over and over and over again. It is finished. I have paid the ransom price. You have been washed white. I've brought you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Don't you see? When we can agree... (laughs) We've done nothing to deserve God's grace, but are simply just recipients of his lavish grace. That makes us one. It gives us a unity that transcends all other things today. Christ did not just bleed for our forgiveness. He bled so that you can be redeemed. 
Redemption is not just saved from your life. It's set free to live. He set you free from your selfishness. He set you free from your pride. He set you free from your preferences that change with the direction of the wind. He sets you free from centering your whole life on me, myself, and I. Redemption is the cause. Forgiveness and freedom is the fact. And unity is the result. Do you know that this mystery has been made known to you? Christ bled for our unity. So let us be imitators of Christ, which means that we now bleed, we sacrifice for the sake of others. And don't make others sacrifice for us. That we've been redeemed and free from letting political differences divide us about a red, white, or blue donkey or elephant because we are united by the bloodied red lamb of God who bled for our forgiveness. We've been redeemed and free to consider one other another's interest as important as our own, for isn't that what Christ has done for us? We will never be a people who say, what about me? For what if Christ said, what about me? We've been redeemed in Christ for freedom that doesn't reduce our community and relationships to thin transactions based on what others can do for us, but it's based on the grace that we can lavish on others around us. And we've been redeemed and given a freedom and identity in Christ that isn't fragile like the temporary fake redeemers of this age. But it's forever secure on the performance of Jesus that doesn't exclude others who are different than us, but welcomes us and welcomes others because of the way that Christ welcomes us who were utterly different than Christ. The one who is holy has done what? Not excluded us, but welcomed us even when we were his enemies, even when we were unholy, which means we will now be a people that welcomes every man, woman, and child from every race, every tribe, every tongue, so that we can show off this mystery of Christ that's now been made known to us. And we get to make it known to others. Do you want to know why we know of Helene's story? Who was saved by her mother? It's because she lived to tell the story at the sacrifice of her mother's life. And we get to do the same. We get to tell a story that our redemption through Christ's blood leads to our union in his blood. We get to tell the story, oh, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, you have washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into his marvelous light. It's a redemption that leads to union. Amen? If you're anything like me, when you hear that word redemption, you only remember half of it. You only remember half the story. And half the story is that, yes, Jesus bled for our forgiveness. 
but it leads to the mystery of God's will, that we are one. And when believers come together, they get to partake of a meal that symbolizes our union with Christ. The meal of the the bread and the wine. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he sat down with disciples who had failed him.